Good morning. Happy Easter. Welcome to our Easter Sunday stay-at-home podcast. As I was planning for the message this morning, I found myself a little bit torn. You know, the typical setting for an Easter story usually takes places in in the setting of the garden tomb or the stone rolled away. You know, hear the bells ringing, they're singing. Uh, But, you know, we've been studying the book of Judges together, and the place we turned to in our study last week was to see how the judges of ancient Israel are telling and retelling the story of the gospel, the story of, of the deliverer, the Messiah who God is sending, and how the stories of these judges' lives and deeds are meant to be read by us with the gospel story of Jesus in mind. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had this moment in study where I just really felt that the story of the judge Ehud was such a wonderful parallel to the story of Christ's victory over sin and death that I started toying with the idea of using this story for our text on Easter. You know, my excitement for this particular story is that uh, I think it's an effective story at magnifying Christ's victory over sin and death, which is one of my favorite themes of Easter. But my hesitancy in (laughs) moving this direction and telling the story is that it's really graphic and maybe a little bit disturbing. And and so I will let you know, I did bounce the idea off a few friends and church members, and uh, they seemed to think it was worth it, but they were very clear that I couldn't blame them if it all goes badly. So as you're listening to the podcast today, uh, just just know that uh, we've really been thoughtful and prayerful in going this direction. And so I guess without any further qualifiers, here we are, Easter with Ehud. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we get to be tuned in together today. Uh, celebrating your son's victory over sin in the grave, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and ultimately the resurrection of all of humanity into his eternal life. And so today, as we listen to your word and as we just reflect on the incredible victory that you have won, I pray that each of us would feel uh, just a sweeping up of our own heart and souls into that victory, into Uh, the glorious achievement that you have uh, accomplished through your resurrection, and uh, that we could join you in that in some way today, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn to Judges chapter 3. We'll be picking the story up in verse 12. This is kind of a familiar setting for the story of these judges. In verse 12, we read that again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. He got the Amorites and the Amalekites to join him, and Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. Verse 14, we read the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years these people are subjected to the rule of this king of Moab, who presumably is ruling from the city of Jericho. Verse 15, it says, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which is about a forearm's length, which he had strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. You know, if we are to hear this story as it was intended for its original audience, there's probably a couple of things that I just want to point out to make sure that we understand. One of those things is that 
the original ancient Hebrew audience uh, would have known culturally that when you say someone is left-handed, it's not just another way of saying that that person is awesome. This would be a modern-day application of the phrase left-handed. But being left-handed back in that day was associated with trickery, with being clever, kind of like, watch out for that guy, he's a schemer, uh, he's left-handed. It was also seen, in addition to that, as, as a real combat advantage. And I had a happy time in my mind just remembering that scene from The Princess Bride when they're fighting with swords and both of the men coming into the fight were pretending to be left-handed. And when one would get the best of the other, they would confess they're not really left-handed and then throw the sword into their right hand and suddenly be fighting better. And I would imagine that maybe that was the reverse in ancient warfare. Someone would be out fighting with their right hand and when they felt an opponent had the best of them, they would switch to their left hand, their strong hand, and, and then everything's different. Uh, I'm sure there's some analogies between pitching and baseball here, but I've never been a fan of baseball, nor have I played, so I have no idea how to bring that one in. My apologies. Anyhow, verse 17, it says that uh, he presented the tribute to the king of Moab, who was a very fat man. In verse 18, uh, Ehud has presented the tribute, and then he is, they're sent on their way, along with those who helped him carry it there. And so, it, just imagine this scene for a moment with me. You know, in walks Ehud into Jericho and into the king's throne room or whatever, and he's got this sword concealed on his right side where people wouldn't expect a sword to be because usually they're carried on the left side. And he's got it there where he can draw it with his left hand at the right time and, and you know, assassinate the, the king of Moab. And I'm sure his mind is racing as he walks in, like, do it now, do it now. And then he's looking, oh, there's all these people around. I'm not sure I can pull it off. And how are my friends and I ever going to escape? And do it now. And then whatever happens, you know, he ends up handing over the tribute. The moment passes and he doesn't do it. And so they're, they're heading back home. And, and in his mind, he's probably thinking, oh, you, you coward, you failure, you had your chance, you were right there, but you couldn't pull it off. And then he and his companions walk past something at Gilgal. The account says that they walk past uh, stone images at Gilgal. Uh, some translations will say idols, some say quarry. But if you're making, if you know the story, of Israel. And if you're making connections between the story at this point, this is a super important detail in the story. And this is a reason why I think it's so important to read the whole Bible as a connected story. We talked about that a little bit last week. But if you remember what is supposed to be at Gilgal, what stones are supposed to be there? And if we were live, oh, I would be asking this question, and I'm sure one of the good Christians in the audience would raise their hand and accurate, answer the question accurately. Because we're not live, I will just tell you, there are 12 stones that were carried up from the middle of the Jordan River, and they were carried up by the people of Israel when they crossed the river, when God stopped the river up, and Israel got to cross over on dry land with Joshua leading the way. Um, these 12 stones were carried by the nation of Israel up to Gilgal, where they camped that first night, and these stones were set up as a memorial to what God had done. These stones were supposed to be standing for all time, so that when the nation of Israel came along years later and the kids said, what are these stones for? People would say, these are the stones commemorating what God has done. These stones are a sign to us that God is faithful. They're a reminder to us of God's character and his goodness and his faithfulness to his people. And yet, here we are with the story of Ehud, and, and this is not too much 
time later, after the stones would have originally been put there, a generation or two later, and uh, there are no longer the 12 stones sitting there to remind people of what God has done, but there are these 12 stone images or idols. Uh, who knows exactly what happened? We don't know, but maybe the original stones had been uh, carved away and, and carved into the fashion of idols. Maybe they'd been vandalized. Maybe the pagans had set up a counter uh, memorial to their own gods there. But as Ehud walks past these stones, and he knew in his mind that this is the place that's supposed to be an altar or a memorial that is pointing to God, and yet what he sees in its place is these corrupted stone images pointing to the created rather than the creator, testifying to the rebellion of humanity rather than to the faithfulness of God. Ehud sees this scene, and it's like he couldn't take it anymore. The, the account says when he reached the stone images near Gilgal, he himself turned back to Eglon. So, uh, you know, I imagine upon seeing the desecration of what should be, Ehud says to his friends, hey, you guys go on ahead. I, I forgot my cell phone back at the palace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run back there. And the account says he goes back to the king with these words. He says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And with these words, crafty Ehud gains access to the king in the intimate setting of the king's own upper room, or, or cool room, some translations say. And, and this would have been the room that was the personal retreat, the personal residence in the king's palace. Maybe think of it as a bedroom, if you will, where the, the king is able to get away and be in his place of comfort and safety from all the pressures and, and trials of life. Anyhow, the king, when he hears there's a secret message for him. He ends up sending all of his attendants out of the room. For what does he have to fear? He's in his own refuge. He's in his own safe place. This lowly, conquered Israelite has come in. Surely he couldn't possibly harm him. And so Ehud says to the king, I have a message from God for you. And the king stands up to hear the words of the secret message. And Ehud comes closer as if to whisper in the king's ear, and then we read in verse 21 that Ehud reaches his left hand, he draws the sword from his right thigh, and he plunges it into the king's belly. Verse 22 says that even the handle sank in after the blade, and that the king's bowels discharged, or some translations say that it came out the back. In the Hebrew, we're not sure what came out the king's back, whether his bowels discharged out his backside or whether the blade of the knife went out his back. As I said, this is a graphic and disturbing story. Anyhow, Ehud did not pull the sword out, but the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch and he shut the doors to the upper room behind him and he locked them. And so Ehud walks calmly away. I imagine him whistling, you know. <laughs> and then after some time, the servants have noticed that the king hasn't come out. He's been in there a long time. They notice the door is locked. Uh, I, it doesn't explicitly say this in the text, but the assumptions they make about what the king is doing, I imagine they smell the smell of his discharged bowels, and they say to themselves, the king must be in there relieving himself. <laughs> he must be in there doing his business as people do. And so it ends up taking these servants some time to, to even figure out what has happened. It says they waited to the point of embarrassment before they finally break in and they find him dead, it, you know, which reminded me of times when my children were very little and they're trying to be independent and use the bathroom on their own. And, and as a parent, you're sort of hovering outside the door wanting to give them privacy, but you're beginning to wait to the point of embarrassment where you're, you're partly concerned 
for their well-being because they've been in there for what feels like an eternity. And you're also, you know, you're embarrassed. No one wants to walk in on someone in the toilet. That's unpleasant for all parties involved. Anyhow, they walk in, they find him dead. And in that time, Ehud has totally escaped. And he's able to totally escape. He ends up rounding up the Israelite army. They take control of the crossing of the Jordan River where the Moabites who have been occupying their land could escape to Moab's territory, also where the Moabites who are in their own territory could maybe come to help those who have been occupying the land. Israel seals that crossing, and then they they go throughout the land. They rout the Moabites, and they drive them all out, uh, establishing 80 years of peace. And this is a great story of victory. And in many ways, not much like the story of the cross or even the story of the garden tomb at first blush. But I do think these stories are really similar and that the story of Ehud the judge is simply a retelling of the gospel story. You know, Ehud was moved to act when he saw these stones that were meant to testify to God's goodness and God's faithfulness being corrupted by those who were party to Satan's rebellion against God. And for Ehud, that was the last straw. And the time had now come to do something. And I think Jesus was similarly moved to act when he saw humanity, a humanity that was meant to embody and testify to God's faithfulness and his goodness when he saw humanity corrupted by Satan's rebellion. And it's like this point in history happened where where witnessing God's image bearers being deceived by the tempter and corrupted by sin, it's like Jesus said at some point, I cannot take it anymore. The time has come to do something. And his plan for restoring humanity and saving humanity went into action. Ehud returned to Jericho, a city that had been possessed by the enemy. And Jesus re-entered the fallen world that he had created as a child, a world that had been possessed by the enemy. Ehud met with the king in the inner room, the safe place of his palace, the place where the king would certainly feel if he reigned supreme anywhere, he reigned supreme in the upper room of his palace. And Jesus entered the depth of human fallenness. For him, the cross was the doorway through which Jesus entered into the depths of Satan's stolen territory, the grave, the place of the dead, Satan's own inner room, an abode where evil felt safe and entitled to consume the dead of humanity forever. And just like Ehud facing the king of Moab in his own upper room, through the cross, Jesus, the eternal life of God, entered into the place of the dead. Now, there's this apocryphal account of Jesus in hell, in Hades, in the place of the dead, that's recorded in the extra-biblical gospel of Nicodemus. And this gospel, this account, it's not a canonized part of scripture. It was written centuries after Jesus died. And so it's not necessarily going to hold the value of scripture for us, but one of the values that it does hold for us is it paints a picture for us of how the church conceptualized Christ's work of atonement in her first 500 years of existence. This gospel was actually written as a counter uh, storytelling to a, 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 a pagan gospel of Nicodemus that was circulated at the time, uh, spreading lies about Jesus Christ. Uh, anyhow, Uh, So we don't read it as an eyewitness account like we would maybe the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke, but again, it does give us insight into how the church 
believed things went down for the first 500 years of her existence. Uh, and so there's this scene in the story where Satan and Hades, who is hell personified, a, a demon, if you will, who has authority over hell, Satan and Hades are having a conversation. And in the conversation, Satan brags that he is bringing his great enemy, Jesus of Nazareth, a man claiming to be the son of God, into hell. And Satan's saying how this man has been making things really hard up in the world of men because he's been healing the blind and the lame and he's been setting the oppressed free with just a word of his mouth. And Satan is quite proud of himself for this, this catch, this triumph that he's had. And, and he's insisting that it's going to be really glorious when this man is brought in uh, to face death. He says, he, he, he even alludes to, I heard this man say that, he, uh, that he's afraid of death. He, he said his soul is troubled even unto death, quoting one of the lines in scripture, and and Satan cites this as evidence that he has indeed won a great prize here and victory is his. (laughs) But Hades has some concerns in the dialogue. He isn't so sure that they should let Jesus in. Uh, Hades argues to Satan that, well, if he's done everything you say, is he really just a man? In fact, Hades says, I think this might be God himself. He might have the power to steal all of these men from us. He says, have you considered that when he said his soul was troubled even to death, that maybe that was part of the trap? Maybe Jesus was saying that so that you would bring him here. (laughs) Like, and then he brings up, wait a minute, is this the guy, is this the same Jesus who stole Lazarus from me a little while ago? And Satan answers, yes, he is. And now Hades is sure. He wants nothing to do with this. He says, from time to time, men are stolen from my grasp you know, when a, when a righteous man prays to God. But he says, it was different when Lazarus was stolen from me. When Lazarus was stolen from me, the man just said the word and Lazarus flew out of here like an eagle. And at the sound of his voice, I shuddered and I was overwhelmed with fear, with all of my being. And then he says, and I'll read this out of the account. He says, wherefore now I know that that man which was able to do these things is a God strong in command and mighty in manhood and that he is the savior of mankind. And if thou bring him unto me, he will set free all that are here, shut up in hard prison and bound in the chains of their sin that cannot be broken. And he will bring them unto the life of his Godhead forever. Hades fears that concealed somewhere within the man, Jesus Christ, the Godhead dwells. That the power that created the universe, the power of an incorruptible eternal life may just be hidden somewhere inside this Jesus of Nazareth and that this power is waiting within Christ, waiting like Ehud's custom sword, just waiting for the right moment to be unleashed into the depths of humanity's bondage, waiting for just the right moment to conquer sin and death themselves and to break these chains and set the captives free. And at this point in the conversation, the account says that a voice thunders and pierces hell and says, open up you gates and lift up your heads, you ancient and everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. Of course, echoing a prophecy from the Psalms. And then the king comes in, no gates can hold him back. Jesus breaks into hell clothed in light and he binds Hades and he tramples the powers of darkness, making a public spectacle of them as the authors of the New Testament wrote. And and then the story says that then did the king of glory in his majesty trample upon death and laid hold of Satan the prince and delivered him into the power of hell. And then he drew Adam to himself 
and unto his own brightness. And so Jesus binds Satan in hell, and then he leads out Adam and Adam's children into everlasting life. And although this particular account, this particular story, might be more parts made of the imagination of Christ's followers in the fourth century than parts supernatural revelation from the Holy Spirit, I do think that it harmonizes so well with the story of Ehud, and it harmonizes so well with the story of the gospel. And I think that it is the most powerful narrative to help us really understand what Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ entered the depths of our fallenness, entered the prison of our sin, and by his power, he cut these supposedly unbreakable bonds. By his power, he delivered us from an inescapable prison. And by his power, he trampled those things that would have held us back and he carried us up into his eternal life. And this power is at work in our world today, still setting captives free, still redefining people's eternities. And this power is at work in, I believe, each of our lives, each and every day. And so today on Easter, I want to challenge you to, one, acknowledge this incredible truth that God's victory over sin is a victory that impacts your daily life each and every day. It's not just a victory that impacts our eternity, but it's a victory, well, maybe it's better to think of this. It is a victory that impacts our eternity, and our eternity is started, you know, the moment that we're born. And so each and every day, we get to live in harmony with Christ's power and what he is accomplishing, or we can try to hide from his power and work in opposition to it. But why would we ever want to do that? And so this Easter, I pray that you and your families would go forth in the power of God's Spirit and that you would be experiencing his victory in your life as you interact with the world around you and as we strive to build his kingdom, uh, saying your kingdom come and your will be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that you have won. We thank you for stories that are preserved for us in gospel and stories that are preserved for us in the Christian tradition that help us understand how incredible your victory is and how complete it is. I pray right now that any part of our lives that does not line up with your victory would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit, even in this moment of prayer, that you would be moving us closer to your kingdom and closer to your victory. In Jesus' name, amen.